Hey everyone, hey church. My name is Dia Summers. I am also known as Ryan's wife and the mom to Addie and Elliot downstairs. So there's a connections. There's a lot of people I don't know yet um, and I'd love to get to meet you. I am introverted, so you kind of have to help me along to be like, oh yeah, small talk is what people do. Um, so it's nice to meet you all. And I'm going to be the scripture reader for today. All right. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered them, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought him, and they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Thanks, Dia. Well, in this life, um, there are truly beautiful moments. Like in God's grace, he has, he has enabled um, truly amazing, beautiful, transcendent, joy-filled, hope-filled things to happen. Um, whether it's a night of beautiful community laughing around the dinner table and a bottle of wine or whatever, uh, whether it has to do with your family, whether it has to do with your closest friendships, whether it has to do with some achievement, uh, maybe it's encountering beauty and art or whatever, like there's so much goodness and so much joy to be had. And even as we talked about last week, uh, the story of the transfiguration, there are moments of powerful, like transcendent spiritual encounter where the God of the universe in his grace reveals himself to us, comes close to us, comes near to us, and we get to taste and see that the Lord is good in no uncertain terms. These things happen, and it's amazing, and it's beautiful. But 
in this very same world, it's a tragic reality that we always, 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 at some point or another, usually very frequently, have to deal with the broken just crashing in on the sublime. Like the really ugly and destructive and sin-stained and disruptive crowding in on those beautiful moments. Um, nonetheless, nonetheless, in Jesus, we have, the, we have the, the capacity in him to have an anchor that will hold if we'll trust him. And that's what this story is about. If you remember last week, we, re- we read about the story of the transfiguration and we talked about how in the way Mark laid this out, we used the chalkboard, it was the literal central point of the Gospel of Mark, right? It's 16 chapters, right? Chapter 8, or into the beginning of chapter 9, they go up on this mountain peak and God, the glory of God in Christ is shown to them. He's, he's like, it's, like, it's like a peak behind the veil and the transcendent glory of Jesus, the eternal Son of God, shines forth for them to see with their bare eyes. But as we mentioned, as soon as they leave that transcendent spiritual high mountaintop experience, they start heading down the mountain, and then Jesus starts talking about death again. And the disciples are like perplexed by that. And then as soon as they get down the mountain, we get this story. We get this story. Verse 14, they came to the disciples. So that's Jesus, Peter, James, and John, the ones who are up on the mountain. They came to the rest of the disciples, and they saw this great crowd around them, the scribes. And Dia read this all for us, but we're instantly introduced to this really chaotic scene. Like, chaos. Like, it's kind of hard to get your bearings. And we're introduced to tons of characters that that really emphasizes the hustle and bustle. So I'm just going to lay out all the different groups that are here. First, you've got the four. Jesus, Peter, James, and John. Remember, coming down from the ultimate spiritual high, seeing the glory of Christ in the flesh, shining forth, the one greater than Moses, the one greater than Elijah, the one that God the Father said, listen to him. They heard the booming voice of God on a mountain. They come down, and immediately they're brought back down into the mess of life in the real world. Jesus isn't any less glorious now, but he's once again standing next to severe opposition, next to sin, next to evil, next to suffering. So there's the four. Then you've got the nine disciples, the others that were left behind who didn't get to go up on the mountain. At some point, we we put together, they had been asked to help a family in need but they're unable to do it without Jesus. And so they'd gotten into this argument with the scribes and we don't get the information about what that argument was about. I'm sure it had something to do with their inability to cast out this demon. Then you've got the scribes. As I said, we don't really learn anything about them here except that they came looking for a fight with the disciples and that's what they were into. Then we've got a crowd looking at the spectacle of what was happening waiting for Jesus. They're kind of the spectators of this story, kind of the booming masses, just kind of, ooh, what's going, what's going to happen next? What's going on? Then you've got a father, a dad. We can assume in just absolute desperate anguish over the condition of his son. And then you've got the son. We read, it's a, it's a graphic description. It's chilling. This boy who had been suffering from a ton of conditions having to do with the last character in the story, which is a demon, an unclean spirit, an evil spirit that had been tormenting this boy from when he was very young, so probably for years and years. So instantly in this story, we're confronted with something we haven't talked about in a while in the Gospel according to Mark, and that's the reality of the demonic. And we didn't, 
I think, I think the most time we devoted to this was back in chapter one when Jesus had an encounter with, with, with a demon uh, in a synagogue. And we didn't really get into it. I thought now would be a good time to spend a little bit more time kind of wrestling through what does this mean? Because we're all nice 21st century Portlanders, you know, conditioned in a world to have a fair share of skepticism probably about the supernatural. Um, and we come pro- across this story. And you might think that belief in the demonic is a hard pill to swallow, even if you're a Christian, even if you're a follower of Jesus, even if you admit to the tra- a transcendent creator God of the universe. You might read this and go, well, come on. Is this for real? Uh, and I, I don't think I have the means or the capacity or even, uh, yeah, there's no way I can, I can convince you to believe this other than to say, um, is it really more challenging than believing some, some of the things that people who don't have a, a supernaturalist worldview believe, that in a closed materialistic system, here's one, that something came from nothing. Or, in a closed materialistic system, and to put more detail, made up of nothing but matter in motion, pieces of matter banging around to and fro, that life came from non-life, or that mind came from non-mind. Or, in the same, in a closed materialist system, that random chance somehow produced sexually dimorphic reproduction. You ever thought about that one? Male and female that actually can reproduce together being produced by random chance. It's wild. Certainly there are scientific theories about how that might have happened, but that's a tough one. At the end of the day, the Bible claims there is a God who's created material and immaterial beings, and that some of those immaterial or spiritual beings have chosen to rebel against him. They've rebelled against him, and they are dead set on opposing his rule and his reign. And we can describe them a whole number of ways, but they they certainly include Satan and his demons. So we're left with just that reality. Uh, But I don't know that it's more outlandish than, than, than many of the things that people already believe. But another thing you might read when you get this is you see this boy who it looks like he's clearly in some sort of like epileptic fit. He's having epileptic seizures, perhaps. It's very similar to what what we uh, would call epilepsy. So you might read this passage and be tempted to think something like, oh, those stupid, superstitious, ancient people. This kid was clearly struggling with epilepsy. If only they had modern medicine, then they'd be able to know. That's your impulse when you read this. But the truth is, even in the Gospels alone, there is recognition of serious physical conditions that are not the result of demonic oppression. The New Testament does not see a demon under every rock. Even with, even with human sickness, they understood that sometimes suffering was from overt spiritual causes, like is described here, or sometimes it was just the result of human sin. Sometimes it was simply the product of living in a fallen world. They didn't flatten the myriad experiences that they encountered into one thing, and neither should we. So don't dismiss them as though everything everything they saw that was ugly or difficult was was demonic. Nonetheless, this this instance was, Mark claims. One other thing we could say about the demonic is is about their agenda. Their agenda. Um, in general, I mean, here's a few passages just to set the table. Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, 
against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So there is real spiritual evil that has some measure of authority in this broken world that's at odds with the kingdom of God. Listen to Jesus in John 8, 44. The devil was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he's a liar and the father of lies. Or Jesus in John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. First Peter 5, 8, Peter writes, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's the character and the agenda of Satan and his, his demons. They're, they're fundamentally an opposition kingdom set up over and against the kingdom of God, trying to thwart God's purposes and plans every step of the way. And note that the three ways that the demon oppressed this boy, I think this is actually super crucial. We see that he was, Jesus calls him a deaf and mute spirit, so the boy was unable to hear and unable to speak properly as a result of this demon's influence and oppression in his life. Deaf and mute. We see that there are these seizures that would throw him down to and fro, throw him around like a rag doll. It's a very, very ugly image. Very cruel that there would be a personal presence behind this boy being thrown about in these, these fits. And then finally, I might, I might mention that to the untrained eye, to the eye that maybe didn't recognize what was going on spiritually, it looks like self-harm, doesn't it? That this boy would to the untrained eye, just throw himself into water, throw himself into dangerous things. You say, well, this kid's got a death wish. He's harming himself. And there's actually a lot of significance to each of these things. These are characteristic of the general strategies of Satan and his demons. The deafness and the muteness speaks to the fact that Satan wants to isolate people. He isolates people. He desires to isolate people from community, both from God, I and mean, fundamentally from God, of course, and with neighbor, especially the community of God's people. It's one of the key strategies. Make him unable, make him or her unable to actually receive the blessings and benefits of life in the family of God, the support, the scaffolding, the accountability, the encouragement, the love, the provision that this family are meant to provide to one another. Or the seizures, these fits of flailing. This is just basic physical hindering and physical harm. The demonic love to harm the children of God, God's image bearers. And then finally, they love to even work to get people to harm themselves. There is a deeply dark spiritual connection to images of suicidal, or to the idea of suicidal ideation, self-harming, cutting, all these kinds of things. It's no surprise, it's no mystery that there's often like dark spiritual realities connected to those places. And again, we don't need to flatten, we don't need to flatten more than the biblical, uh, biblical writers did. It's not though every time struggles with, with their mental health that there's a demon under the rock, I'm not saying that. But I am saying that one of the aims of the demonic is to get people to do these things, to isolate them, to think, to think of, to, to, to plant the ideas that they might harm themselves, though they are beloved and cherished by God. There's other things too that we don't see here. Demonic frequently 
are after temptation to sin, of course, accusation or influencing people so they experience feelings of shame, doubt, fear, deception, we talked about the father of lies, deception toward false belief about God or about themselves, or persecution. We see it all over the book of Acts, Satan organizing social structures and individuals to punish or deter faithful Christian witness. These are all ways the demonic gets expressed in the New Testament. But here's the most important thing. Okay, that's scattershot stuff about, about demons. Here's the most important thing to know. Jesus came and was victorious over them. They're real, but Jesus is already victorious. These little skirmishes we read about in the Gospels, where Jesus has these power encounters with demons, they were just previews of this decisive victory that he won for us on the cross. The war has been decisively won. We just wait for God's final dealing with these enemies at the final judgment when he returns. It's like that idea of like a, a war has been declared over, but people are still fighting, fighting the battles in the trenches. You know, the communication hasn't gotten there. You could, you could think of that image. That's the world we live in right now. Jesus is victorious. He has been di- victorious over sin, Satan, death, evil, all of it. But the skirmishes still play out until he returns again in power. In the meantime, the main thing I want you to hear is that God's people can and should walk in faithful confidence in the victory of Jesus and the authority of Jesus in the here and now. You don't need to fear the reality of Satan and the demonic. Jesus is bigger. He's more powerful. He's already won. Let's keep reading. Let's keep reading. I actually want to zero in second half of verse 22. So this man has come up, and he's pleading with Jesus. He says, he, he had just described what was happening to the boy, but he says, if you can do anything, Jesus, have compassion on us. Help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe help my unbelief when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together he rebuked the unclean spirit saying to it you mute and deaf spirit I command you come out of him never enter him again and after crying out and convulsing him terribly it came out the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he is dead but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose so in this little section we see a weak faith but an able Jesus. The man gives an expression of doubt. He says, if you can, he's, he's kind of hedging his bets with Jesus a little bit. You know, if, if you're compassionate, but fundamentally, if, if you actually have the ability to do something about this, will you do it? Will you do it? Jesus rebukes him. Confirms, actually, all things are possible for one who believes. And then the father's response One of the most profound things, I think, in in all of the New Testament. I believe. Help my unbelief. The same word there that's translated belief, it's the same same word and the same root um, for faith. Faith, trust, belief, these are basically synonymous terms when we talk about these in, in Christian theology. So he says, I have faith. Help my lack of faith. 
I trust, help my lack of trust. I believe, help my unbelief. This kind of belief, it's not just detached intellectual acknowledgement. I remember Josh White used to use this illustration a lot, that, that a chair will hold you up. Look at that chair right there. It looks pretty sturdy. It looks sturdy. I believe that chair can hold me up. But until you're actually willing to go and sit in the chair and demonstrate your willingness, like put your money where your mouth is. It's one thing to say it, it's another to actually move toward a dependence on the chair's holding up ability. So the man's articulating this tension within him. He's articulating reality that belief can coexist with unbelief to some measure. And as Christians, we can be pretty crummy about just telling people, oh, you just gotta believe, you just gotta believe, you just gotta believe, have enough faith, have enough faith, have enough faith. And this man illustrates what I think if we're honest with ourselves, we recognize deep down in our heart of hearts, it's more complicated than that. If you're here and you self-consciously follow Jesus, you've, you've at some point made a decision to trust him for your salvation, for the forgiveness of your sins, and to follow after him, you've got some measure of belief. But you know and I know that belief, it wavers. It comes and it goes. There's days where it's weaker. There's days when it's stronger. There's days whenever it's barely hanging on by a thread. And that's what the man confesses to. I do believe, but I am wracked with unbelief. In the very same moment, at the very same time, there's nothing contradictory about those two things. This is a deeply humble, dependent thing to say. Would it be better if the man did not struggle with unbelief? Of course it would be. But nonetheless, this is deeply humble. His honesty before the king. And I think if we are honest, if you are honest, certainly if I'm honest, we never, I never graduate past this kind of, past this kind of attitude. Standing before you right now, yes, I have faith in Jesus. I trust him. But there are things that really, really make it hard for me to trust Jesus. There are things that really, really make me want to give up. There are things that I'm racked with shame over in my relationship to Jesus. There are things that if I'm honest, I probably don't believe, that I would say I believe. I'm trying to believe because I haven't seen it or because it's uncomfortable for me or because I don't feel like I have all the answers or whatever. I believe help my unbelief is probably to some degree and measure something that we will all walk with for the rest of our lives and I think that's okay. You want to know why? Because Jesus is infinitely gracious. <laughs> this small, humble seed of faith that this man has, I believe, but help my unbelief, Jesus, it's met with resounding compassion from the king. Jesus does say, well, <laughs> tough luck, buddy. Come back when you, you don't have that little bit of, or that lot of bit of unbelief. Come back tomorrow, maybe, maybe you'll be a little bit stronger. Maybe you'll be ready then. No? Jesus just declares the truth. <laughs> he laughs, if you can. He says, no, all things are possible for one who believes. And then he, he moves to action. This man's, in some ways, compromised faith is enough for Jesus to intervene on his behalf and to bring salvation into this moment, salvation to his son even. And he has victory with a simple command. He just, rebukes, he just rebukes the spirit, get out, never return. 
It's not like the other healers of Jesus' day with their fancy incantations and magical rites and he has to light the right candles or I don't know what else, flip the right tarot cards over or something. There's no secret sauce to this. It's just the authority of the Son of God, the one we've already seen up on the mountain, God in the flesh, who's loving and compassionate and good, who's already powerful enough to just say to this, you're gone, never return. That's it. That's it. And then I love this image. It's just like when Jesus healed uh, Jairus' daughter a few chapters ago, but it says that Jesus took... So, so, so the demon leaves, the boy falls to the ground. They think he looks like a corpse, looks dead, motionless. That was probably a horrifying image for this father. But I love this image of Jesus coming. It says he takes the boy by the hand and he lifts him up. It says, arise. This little, little image of the resurrection, this thing that he's going to do for you one day if you're in Christ. He will take you by the hand and raise you up to new life. The tender compassion of Jesus is on display here. And just just note for a second the comparison between the God-man Jesus and the demonic spirit. This demon had been throwing this boy about, trying to throw him into rivers so that he might drown. You know, the self-harm stuff, this physical impairment stuff. Um, Who knows what the day-to-day of this boy's life looked like. It was probably horrific. And as a father, I just can't imagine the grief. Set that side by side with the king of the universe, Jesus, coming and saying, arise, little boy. Stooping down, coming close, touching him, healing him, mending him, compassion, concern. We go back to John 10. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, doesn't he? But I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. He goes on, first part of verse 11, because I am the good shepherd. Any other spiritual source, the thing we turn to, and this is often the case, people get into weird spiritual stuff. They don't think it's connected to the genuine demonic, but it is. It always is, thinking they're going to get some kind of leg up, some kind of power, some kind of help that's going to make life easier. Things are going to go more smoothly. They give themselves over to it little by little. And the end result is stealing, killing, destroying, because that's all there is in these other channels. That's that's the end. Might be enticing at first, but the, the result is death. Versus Jesus, who's the good shepherd, who lays down his life for his sheep. They they might have life and have it abundantly. The one who comes close, kneels down, lifts up, sustains, provides for, cares, protects, has compassion. Jesus is, we keep talking about this in Mark. We've said it so many times, but Jesus, it's good news for us, friends, that Jesus is powerful He's strong enough to do all the things that he said, even to cast out these demons with a simple word, but he's also good. He's also good. And we've said before, if he was powerful but he wasn't good, that's a nightmare. That is a nightmare for anyone to have this kind of power but to not be trustworthy with it, to not be the very definition of goodness and light and purity and beauty, justice. But he is those things. And it's also not just that he's a good-hearted guy 
you know, even sinless, if it were possible, for a man to be sinless and good-hearted and perfectly, you know, desiring of the fundamental good for everyone, but had no power to actually enact that agenda in the world. It's useless to us. The God-man is both. He's the only one who is. And thank God that he is. So we finish the story in verse 28. This is the way it often goes in Mark. There's some kind of dramatic thing, and then the disciples just kind of have no clue what was actually happening. They have to pull Jesus aside. It says, they went into a house. They entered the house. His disciples asked him privately. I kind of imagine it's because they don't want to do it in front of the crowd. Like, you know, they, out with the crowd, maybe the disciples are like, we, we want to look like we know what's going on here. Oh, yes, yes, I see. Oh, nice technique, Jesus. <laughs> like what you did there. Like what you did there. Ooh, very, very nice touch. But they have questions. They don't really understand what's going on almost any of the time. And once again, here they are. They ask him the question, why could we not cast it out, Jesus? Remember, that's how this all started. The disciples were trying to cast out the demon, and they couldn't. Why could we not? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. End of story. And that was confusing to me when I read that, because I was like, well, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> we're, like, we're, is, is there any kind that can't be cast out by prayer? Were the disciples not praying? We don't know. There's a lot of details about the story we, we, we might want to know, but I think, I think actually the answer is, no, they weren't praying. They weren't praying. This passage actually becomes this powerful reminder for the disciples and for you and for me that, that any success in ministry is a gift of God. It's accomplished through him. Faith is the vehicle. You could imagine the disciples now, the inner core, traveling with Jesus, getting all these personal teachings, getting commissioned by him to go, share the good news, all these things. They could have easily begun to think like, we're, we're pretty awesome. We've, we've, got this, we've got this figured out. There must be something special about us that Jesus would have chosen us. Yeah, yeah, oh, well, there's a crowd going, hey, let's do an exorcism. This will be awesome. We have what it takes. But the key word, the word that appears more than any other in this passage, is faith. If you want the, the, the heart and the core of this passage is faith or belief. And we could describe prayer a ton of different ways, but, but it is certainly correct to say that prayer is simply faith expressed. You could read it as synonymous, that last verse. It can only be driven out. It can't be driven out by anything but prayer. It can't be driven out by anything but, but deep faith in conversation with God. Deep reliance on him to act. Begging him, pleading him, throwing yourself at his feet to get him to intervene. And we, could, we, could, we should take the principle that their ministry, in this case an exorcism, it could only be effective through prayer, and we can apply that principle to all of our ministries. The existence of this church, how we teach, how we serve, how we share the good news of Jesus, how we sing, how we work for justice in our city, it will be bottlenecked to the degree that we are, in, that we are engaged in faithfulness and prayer. That we actually recognize him of the source of any good work that we're actually able to do that we're the mere conduits of what he is up to in the world. 
So if the disciples had begun to think there was something special or adequate enough within them to deal with something like this demon-oppressed boy, they had to be shown the truth. They had to be given a humiliating example in front of a giant crowd and the scribes that they actually just couldn't do it. They didn't have what it took. And the same goes for me. And the same goes for you. Any truly genuine spiritual good that will be, that will be done in your life or in mine is the result of just open-handed faith and trust in Jesus' ability to do so. And it's this, it's, it works here. It's, it's the same principle here with the demon-oppressed boy. It's the same way that salvation in the biggest sense works. It's the same reason that the idea that you might be able to save yourself by your own goodness, your own effort, your own moral purity, your own whatever, just collapses. There's a reason we keep coming back to that same, that same phrase, salvation by faith alone in Christ. Faith alone, salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. There's no other road. There's no other avenue. And even with, even with, salvation, it comes back to this very idea. Some of you might be thinking, yes, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Jesus says, that's good enough. Because what actually allows you to be saved is not the quality or the bigness or the volume of your faith even. It's just having it at all. Even if you could just throw the tiniest little like effort out, the tiniest mustard seed is how Jesus talks about it elsewhere. You would not believe what God can do with that including bringing you into his family, forgiving you for his sins, promising you an eternal future with him in his glorious kingdom forever and ever. So, I hope, I hope today, and just quick look at this passage, you can see the bigness, the bigness, the power, the generosity, the compassion of this Jesus. And your inability to save yourself, to minister the way he wants you to, to do anything apart from faith. And if you're one of, one, of us, one of us today, I certainly put myself in this category that's saying to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief, that's okay. You're in good company. That's a humble prayer to pray. And you wouldn't believe what Jesus can do with that. Amen?